Chapter 23 of The Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, The Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Chapter 23 Miss Brotherton and her friend arrive at the Deep Valley. A review. Disappointment. A sudden thought strikes the heiress. She concludes a bargain, though not the one for which she meditated. She sets out upon a walk. Mr. Timothy Smith was punctual to his appointment, and at a very few minutes past nine, Mrs. Tremlett and Mary were jogging along in the miller's jockey-cart, on a seat whereon cushions that looked very like pillows had been carefully strapped, and with a little stool placed before them, the sight of which conjured up so delightful a picture of the manner in which they should return, and the joy it would be her lot to confer and to witness, that the pretty eyes of the heiress sparkled through tears of pleasure, and she would not have exchanged her present expedition for the best party of pleasure that ever was devised by man. A considerable part of the way was the same as that followed Mr. Parsons when he conveyed Michael to the factory, and need not be again described. The tranquil loneliness of that portion of the road which ran along the stream, before it made the turn which brought the hideous prison-house in sight, lulled her spirits into a state that but ill prepared her for the aspect of the grim, desolate-looking dwelling into whose recesses she was about to penetrate. And when it suddenly became visible, something like a groan escaped her. "'I hope that jolt didn't hurt you, ma'am,' said the miller, turning towards her. "'Here we are, safe and sound, and that's half my bargain at any rate.' The vehicle drew up to a small door in the exterior wall of the extensive enclosure in which the building stood. Mr. Smith threw the reins upon the neck of his horse, and bringing his stout person cautiously to the ground, offered his services to assist the two ladies in doing the same. Miss Brotherton trembled as she stood waiting till the miller's summons at the door should be answered. Now that the moment was come which was to decide the question of her success or failure, she no longer felt the same confidence which had cheered her while the trial was still distant, and her heart sunk with anticipated disappointment. Several minutes of irksome delay gave her time to dwell on these oppressive forebodings, and when the door was at length slowly and cautiously opened by Mr. Woodcomb himself, her pale face spoke such painful anxiety that the suspicious guardian of the unholy spot was comforted from the satisfactory conviction that her tale was true, and that she came not under false pretenses to look at that which he considered it to be the first duty of his life to conceal. "'Good morning, Smith. All's right and all's ready for you. Walk in, ladies, if you please,' said the stern manager, relaxing his habitual frown, and intending to be extremely gracious. Mary and her friend stepped forward and heard the stout lock and two heavy bolts secured behind them. "'This way, ladies, this way, if you please. There is no need to trouble you to enter the factory, which, do what we will to keep it nice, can never be quite free from dust. You are a trifle after your time, Mr. Smith, but it's no matter. Dinner time is over, but if the ladies will walk into this room, they shall have all satisfaction. Howsomever, as the young uns is again at work, I can't well stop the mills to march em in altogether.' "'Nevertheless, I don't see but it may be quite as agreeable, or may be more, for the ladies to look at him one or two at a time.' Miss Brotherton did not attempt to speak, but placed herself in a chair near the open door and bent her head to indicate that she was satisfied with the proposed arrangement. "'You had best walk this way with me, Mr. Smith,' said the amiable Woodcomb. "'The ladies look quite agitated, as is but natural, and would sooner be without strangers, I don't doubt.' a proposal which truly was a welcome one to all parties, for Mrs. Tremlett and Mary longed to be at liberty to speak without restraint. 
Mr. Smith was thirsting for his accustomed mug of ale, and the manager himself bursting to make a few inquiries respecting his mysterious visitors. "'Have you seen the colour of their money yet, friend Smith?' were the first words uttered as they crossed the court. Twenty good pounds,' replied the miller, expressively patting the pocket where the treasure lay. "'And given as freely as if it had been twenty pence. Out of a full pocket-book, too, Mr. Woodcomb, I can tell you that.' and I can tell you besides that your money's as sure as the bank, and your customer one as is thinking of her own concerns and not of yours. That's what I'm judging too, Mr. Smith. One can see in a minute if folks' eyes are roving here and there, up and down, to take account of all they can see. God grant that those poor way-faced females may find what they want, and we shall both of us have made a good day's work of it. I shan't wish the thing talked of, that's a fact." not but what I shall be ready with an answer if I'm troubled with questions. People as have money to throw about, like these folks, are not to be put off with a short word and a lock turned in their faces. It mayn't chance one in a century that any such should trouble themselves concerning the cart-loads of live lumber as we takes off to relieve the overstocked parishes. But now it is come to pass, in course we must manage to get through it quietly. So I'm not without my answer, Mr. Smith if the squire should hear of it and make a riot. No, to be sure you aren't. Besides, there's no need to say nothing, replied the miller. Mr. Woodcomb, in answer to this, gave an assenting nod, and an approving smile. Now then, my man, said he, more gaily than he often uttered anything, sit down here, and you shall presently have a snack and a mug to keep you company. I'll see myself to the turning in a few of the hands at a time to be looked at. For I have been thinking the matter over, Master Miller, and I judge it will make ten times less talk and tumult that way than if they were all turned out at once. I'll have out a few boys and girls together, chance-like, just as they come, and ten to one nobody but Pullet will find out that there's anything more going on than some job as I wants to get done. Mr. Woodcomb accordingly proceeded to the different parts of the large establishment and contrived, without stopping the work anywhere, to perform the task he had undertaken. As the selected children came forth from the various rooms, he told them to cross the court to the prentice-house, where they would find one as wanted to look at them, adding an order to come back again as quick as light, if they didn't wish to be strapped dead. Whenever such promises were made, Mr. Woodcomb was known to be strictly a man of his word, and Mary and her friend had soon gazed with anxious eyes and shuddering hearts upon a greater number of half-starved trembling little wretches, than could possibly have been made to pass before them in an equally short space of time by any other mode or process whatever. They came so quickly in succession, however, that no interval was left in which Miss Brotherton and her faithful attendant could exchange a word on the melancholy panorama of human misery that passed before them. Strange and unwanted as was the spectacle of two ladies sitting in the prentice-house, the cowed and frightened children for the most part did little more than stand before her with eyes and mouth wide open for a single minute, and then start off again, while Mary herself aided the celerity of the process by a shake of the head and a wave of the hand, which indicated plainly enough that they were not to stay but go. "'What a multitude, Nurse Tremlett!' she exclaimed at length, her spirits worn with repeated disappointments, and the contemplation of the wretched creatures for whom she knew she brought no help. The train seems endless. The old woman returned her a speaking look and whispered in her ear, Could you not question them, Mary? Might not this dismal work be shortened by your asking them if the boy is here? They can't have any reason to hide him. They can't be agents of Sir Matthew. 
Mary took the hint and said to the next young skeleton that presented itself, Can you tell me if there is a boy here named Michael Armstrong? The result was a stupid and silent stare, and without answering, the child darted off like the rest. Thrice she repeated the question, but with no better success, for two out of the three were among those newly arrived to supply vacancies caused by the late mortality, and the third, from working and sleeping in another chamber, had never heard poor Michael's name. No, was pronounced by this one. No, ma'am, by the two newcomers, and Mary's heart almost failing her, she resumed her silent examination. In truth, there was in most of the unhappy faces that thus presented themselves, such a look of blighted intellect and dogged apathy that she clung to the ever-lessening hope of seeing the boy appear in preference to any further questioning. And thus the coming and going lasted for another half-hour without a word being spoken. At length the sad monotony of the spectacle was broken, at least to the eyes of Mary, by the appearance of a little girl, who, though pale and lamentably thin, had not yet lost thereby the sweet expression of her delicate features, neither had the soul within yielded to the paralyzing influence of the hopeless, helpless, unvarying misery by which she was surrounded. Her soft gray eyes still retained their eloquent power of speaking, and the look of surprise, mixed with something that was almost approaching to pleasure, with which she fixed them upon Mary's face, caused her to make a sudden movement to detain her, as the child, following the example of the rest, was turning away. At first, this movement was caused entirely by the interest which the little creature herself inspired, but it almost immediately occurred to her that here at length there was a chance of receiving a rational and intelligent answer to any question she might ask. And such strength did this idea gain as she continued to look at the child, that she told Mrs. Tremlett to stop the approach of those who were coming on, and by keeping them waiting in the court for a minute or two, to give her time to see if she could not learn something from this most interesting-looking little creature. Mrs. Tremlett showed that she too thought something might now be hoped for, and with great alacrity stepped out into the court to meet the fresh arrivals, shutting, to Mary's extreme satisfaction, the door of the room behind her. "'My dear little girl,' said Miss Brotherton, taking the child's pale and slender hand in hers, "'how came you in this sad place? You do not look as if you were used to it.' "'Not for very long, ma'am,' was the reply. "'But you have been here during the last few weeks?' I have been here for several months, answered the little girl. Can you tell me, and Mary almost gasped as she asked the question, can you tell me if there be a boy here called Michael Armstrong? The look of modest and well-pleased curiosity with which the soft eyes were fixed on Mary's face was instantly changed for an expression of deep anguish. For a few moments no reply was uttered and large tears were already chasing each other down her cheeks before the trembling child found voice to speak. At last she uttered, almost in a whisper, and still looking through her tears in Mary's face, Michael Armstrong is dead. Dead? Oh, do not say so, cried Mary in a voice so shrill as to reach the ears of Mrs. Tremlett, who immediately opening the door close to which she had been stationed, entered in dismay, exclaiming, What is the matter, Mary? For heaven's sake, tell me, was it you who cried out in such a piercing voice? Several of the children who were by this time assembled in the court followed at her heels, thrusting open the door and staring at the scene before them. "'Shut the door, Nurse Tremlett. Send them away. Send them all away. I have no further need to see them,' said poor Mary, weeping from sorrow, disappointment, and complete prostration of spirits. Before she spoke another word, Mrs. Tremlett obeyed her instructions, and gently pushing back the curious throng, closed and bolted the door.' 
Now tell me, my poor dear child, what new sorrow has come upon you? Sure nothing dreadful has happened to the poor little fellow. Nurse Tremlett, he is dead, replied Mary, weeping afresh, as if the boy had indeed been her brother. Lack a day for his poor mother, cried Mrs. Tremlett. These are bad tidings to take home with us, after all our trouble and pains. Oh, Mary, dear, I wish you had never left your home. Say not so, Mrs. Tremlett, said Mary, recovering herself. Certainly it is even better than doubt. And here, here is one I may still save from misery. What is your name, my dear child, and who was it sent you to this dreadful place? My name is Fanny Fletcher, said the little girl, and it was Mother's Parish that sent me here as soon as she was dead. Have you no other friends, no relations anywhere who could take care of you? demanded Miss Brotherton with quickness. No, ma'am, nobody, replied Fanny. But in saying this, the child ceased to weep, and young as she was, an expression of such hopeless yet enduring composure took possession of her beautiful features, that Mary's memory instantly applied to her Byron's thrilling words. My thoughts their dungeon know too well. Back to my breast the wanderers shrink and bleed within their secret cell. Tell me, Fanny, she said, tell me quickly, should you not like to come away from this place? I came here to take away poor Michael Armstrong. I was to pay money for taking him, and I will pay it now for you, if you will tell me that you wish to come and will be a good girl to me. Poor Michael, said Fanny, while her tears again began to flow. Speak, Fanny, shall I take you with me? cried Mary impatiently for she heard without the door the sound of a heavy step approaching. Fanny Fletcher heard it too, and an almost ghastly paleness spread itself over her face and lips. She seemed choking, and perfectly unable to articulate, but clasping her hands together and dropping on her knees before Miss Brotherton, raised her eloquent eyes to her face with a look which required no commentary. "'Open the door, Mrs. Tremlett,' said Mary. "'Don't you hear the knocking?' "'This is the child I shall take away with me,' she added in a whisper, and with a look that her friend perfectly understood. Mrs. Tremlett opened the door, and the well-pleased Mr. Woodcomb stood before them. "'That's well,' he said, looking at the kneeling child and at Mary, whose arm encircled her neck with an air of great complacency. "'I thought by what those said, as you sent back without looking at them, that you had found what you wanted. And now, ladies, I hope you remember the conditions.' "'Do not doubt it, sir.' replied Miss Brotherton, instantly drawing forth her pocket-book. Here is a note of one hundred pounds to repay the trouble I have given you, and here, a second of the same value to atone for the loss of Fanny's labour. All right, ma'am, said Mr. Woodcomb very graciously, and if you had but told me that it was a little girl with a very pretty face, and that her name was Fanny, I could have saved you all your trouble, for we don't happen to have another that would answer to that description. I have taken no trouble, sir, that I at all regret replied Miss Brotherton. But I am anxious to set off on my return without any further loss of time. Will you have the kindness to inquire if Mr. Smith is ready? I don't doubt, ma'am, but he will be ready to obey orders, though the horse have hardly been waited well yet. Howsomever, those as pay well generally looks to have things done in a little less time than other folks. And it's very right and fair that so it should be. If a horse can stand, he ought to go. If his owner is well paid, there is no doubt of it. I should be sorry to distress the horse, said Mary, and if he be not sufficiently rested, we must wait. At your pleasure, ladies, at your pleasure. Pray sit down and make yourselves comfortable. 
and, of course, your ladyship would like to have this pretty little girl here made as decent as we can manage. The dirtiest part of her clothes can be changed easy, though the missus of the prentice house being lately dead puts us all out a little in our management. However, if little Miss Fanny, as we must call her now, will please to come upstairs with me, I can make her look a deal better, I will answer for it. Fanny Fletcher, having been raised from her kneeling position by the hand of Miss Brotherton, still continued to hold that hand tightly, and the young lady now felt so strong a compression of her fingers, and was at the same time conscious of so tremulous a movement in the person of the child, as she nestled closely to her, that she felt persuaded the proposal of Mr. Woodcomb had frightened her. "'You are very kind,' she replied, drawing the child, sordid as its wretched garments were, still closer to her. "'You are very kind, sir.' but I shall prefer taking her away exactly as I first looked upon her. Dear me, only to think of that now. That's the beauty of what's called natural affection. Then, if you will please to keep seated, I'll go tell Miller Smith as you're ready, and all the business done, so as he may set off as soon as he is able. Mary again thanked him for his civility, but felt disposed to think that he might have executed his mission more satisfactorily, when he returned in about three minutes with the assurance that Master Smith would be ready to start in little less than an hour. An hour at that moment seemed to Miss Brotherton an almost interminable space of time. She felt painfully conscious of being confined and pent up with sin and suffering. Heated, agitated, and impatient, panting for the fresh air, and longing to question her little purchased protégé concerning poor Michael, she determined to walk forward on the road they had that morning traversed and letting Mr. Smith and his cart overtake them. "'Should you dislike walking on, Mrs. Tremlett?' she said. "'My head aches, and I am sure nothing will relieve me but a walk.' "'I should like it too, my dear,' replied her observant companion, looking anxiously in her face and perfectly understanding her feelings. "'Walk, ladies!' exclaimed Mr. Woodcomb, looking exceedingly shocked. "'Ladies such as you, to walk out upon our wild moors? Oh, dear, no! That is quite impossible!' This was said to prove at once his tender care of personages possessing the power of dispensing hundreds, and to show that he was not unacquainted with the refinements of polite society. But this civilly intended opposition to their exit produced on his hearers an effect very different from what he intended. That Fanny Fletcher should tremble at the mention of delay was not extraordinary, but that Mary should hear again in fancy the grating sound of the locks and bars, which had closed behind her as she entered, and feel a sick qualm at her heart, that if she were betrayed and doomed to remain in that hateful spot against her will, showed that her nerves had indeed been severely shaken, and that her heroism had more of zeal than strength in it. Mrs. Tremlett, too, looked exceedingly annoyed, though certainly without the same lively recollection of the bolts and bars. But she was so accustomed to consult the wishes of her young companion, and to feel at ease herself only when she saw her so, that she too coloured with impatience, and, sustaining admirably her character of aunt, said, I beg pardon, sir, but I know my niece's constitution so well, that I am quite sure the jolting of that rough cart would not do for her just at present. She is a great walker, and a mile or so, creeping along in the fresh air, will do her a deal of good. "'In course you know best, ladies, and I can't, for certain, take the liberty to oppose. "'But by your leave, I'll just mention your plan to Mr. Smith before you start, "'and then maybe he'll be for pushing on his horse a little.' "'So saying, Mr. Woodcomb left them. "'When Mary, turning to the little girl, said, "'Have you any bonnet and shawl to put on, Fanny?' "'I don't know,' replied the child. "'Not know? How can that be, Fanny?' 
"'because I have never been out of the door "'since I first came into them,' said Fanny. "'Poor dear! "'I wish they would not keep you here any longer. "'This is quite intolerable,' said Mary, "'again opening the door "'and looking impatiently across the dismal court. "'Keep me here,' murmured the little girl "'in a voice of the most evident terror. "'Do you think they will keep me here?' "'No, no, my poor child, they shall not keep you here,' said Mrs. Tremlett kindly. "'Here come the two men together.' Fanny did not venture to look at them, but Mary did, and again, in spite of her reason, she felt terrified at the idea that she was in their power. Mr. Woodcomb, indeed, looked smiling and obsequious as before, but in the countenance of the burly miller there was something of opposition and displeasure that she could not understand.' "'Setting off walking, miss, is very like bilking your driver,' said he, with considerably more bluntness than civility. "'What does he mean, Mrs. Tremlett?' said Mary, turning pale. "'You had better pay the gentleman before you set out, my dear. That's what you mean to say, isn't it, sir?' "'Why, surely, ma'am, it would be more like doing business,' replied the man, looking a little ashamed of himself. "'Is that all?' said Mary, inexpressibly relieved, and drawing out her ready purse with such cheerful alacrity that could the hearts of the two men before whom she stood have been read, there might have been found in both a strong inclination to profit by it a little further. "'That, I think, sir, is the sum you named for the hire of your vehicle,' said Mary, extending her hand with two sovereigns towards him. Mr. Timothy Smith took the money, but certainly thought that if that sharp-eyed rogue Woodcomb had been further, he might have hit upon some excuse for demanding more. As it was, however— he could not venture it, and with a rather surly inclination of the head, pocketed the gold, and left the room. "'Now then, sir, if you please,' said the still-frightened Mary, "'we will wish you good morning.' "'Yes, ma'am, surely you can go if you please. Only perhaps you might like, for the honour of your young relation here, to leave some little gratuity to be divided as a little treat among her late companions.' Mary looked in his face, and the sort of half-ashamed glance with which the extortioner watched the effect of his words appeared to her so sinister that, with a sudden feeling of something like rational alarm, she remembered that she had only a few shillings left in her purse, and that again to open in his presence her still well-filled pocket-book might be dangerous. "'Aunt Tremlett, have you any money to lend me?' she said, at the same time drawing out again her almost empty purse. "'I am very sorry. I have only these few shillings left.' "'but I will willingly send you five pounds, sir, for the purpose you mention, "'if the miller will take the trouble of bringing it to you.' "'Oh, it's no matter, ladies. "'Pray do not trouble yourselves any more about it,' replied Woodcomb, "'keeping his eyes, however, furtively directed towards Mrs. Tremlett, "'who was still engaged in seeking for money in the recesses of a very large pocket. "'I have two pounds and a few shillings, my dear,' said the old lady at length, "'placing her little leathern purse in Mary's hand.' "'That will do, that will do perfectly,' said the worshipper of Mammon, with an air and tone of the most amiable liberality, but at the same time stretching out his hand, in which he received the entire contents, uncounted, of Mrs. Tremlett's purse, which Miss Brotherton unclasped and emptied into it. Had she studied the man's character for years, she could not have devised any manoeuvre so likely to hasten the unlocking the door which enclosed them as thus emptying their two purses before his eyes.' He now moved forward of his own accord, drew forth from the pocket of his coat the massive key, applied it with a large, strong and effective hand to the enormous lock, drew back the heavy bolts, and finally threw wide the hateful door. The three females passed through it with no lingering steps, 
and heard it close heavily behind them, with feelings assuredly very different in degree, but in so far the same that each one as she stepped over the threshold breathed a prayer that she might never repass it again. End of chapter 23